play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. In every episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would want to eat for their last meal. And then we explore the history of that food, the culture, whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program... Jesse Sandoval, former drummer of the indie rock band The Shins. Now, I say former because in 2009, after two hugely successful albums and having their music popularized by the film Garden State, the lead singer of The Shins, James Mercer, pretty much fired the entire band. So Jesse had to come up with something new to do. I guess there are three parts that I loved was music, food, and um, coaching basketball. In the end, Jesse chose food. Jesse's from New Mexico. He loves hatch green chili. He loves sopapillas. So he opened a New Mexican food cart in Portland because everybody in Portland opens a food cart. But then he moved beyond the cart. Him and his friend built a chili roaster and they started roasting their own green chili. And eventually they shut down the food cart to focus on that. Your product is called Los Roast. Los Roast Mexican Green Chili, yeah. And so is this, I saw it actually in a, in a natural food store when I was in Port Townsend. Is it just the pure roasted hatch chili? It's not a salsa. No, it's not a salsa. It's just the roasted chili. And we just add lime juice, garlic, and salt, which is uh, a, a wonderful gift for New Mexicans because normally when you get this chili, it's either in vinegar or it's in a salsa. And so you have all these other flavors. Yeah. You very rarely get the true honest flavor of the hatch chili pepper by itself. So we're able to bring that up and the New Mexican fan base up here in Northwest have gone crazy about it. And this is actually really unique. According to the website, Los Rose became the first company operating outside of New Mexico to have their green chili verified by the New Mexico Department of Agriculture. And it's currently the only out-of-state company producing New Mexico certified chili. That's legit. But I can't say But we need to stop for a minute and talk about the green chili. The green chili is beloved, coveted, revered by New Mexicans. It really is like a cult. It's a drug. It's basically the Betty White of peppers. Everybody wants to get their hands. That's a weird reference. Does anybody want to get their hands on <laughs> Betty White? What I'm trying to say is, is that everybody likes them. Everybody loves Betty White. I'm going to work on this. I asked a friend. <laughs> we'll leave all that in. <clears throat> I asked a friend of mine who grew up in Santa Fe to explain the cult of the green chili. Warren Langford. That's a little NPR. (laughs) Speed it up. Warren Langford. Warren co-hosts one of my very favorite podcasts called Personal Effects. You must listen. He lives in Seattle now, so Jesse's jarred chili has basically saved his life. Warren says if you're having a meal in New Mexico, no matter what the cuisine, except maybe Chinese food, there's a good chance that green chili will be involved. But Warren wasn't always on the green chili train. Well, I didn't understand it as a kid. I didn't like spicy food, which was not good for me <laughs> because everyone, even my like younger brother, loved it. It wasn't until I was like a senior in high school that I literally got peer pressured into trying green chili for the first time. And that's the thing about it is that it's it's parallel to drugs in so many ways. Like it, li- there, 
there is a euphoric feeling that comes over you that is unlike any other spicy food or any other food in general. You get this high. And so you start associating that with the fall during harvest season because they, the way green chili gets displayed and dispersed is the small farmers set up these rotisserie style roasters in like the Kmart parking lots. And they're all over town in every small town in New Mexico. And they roast and the smell just permeates the autumn air. And it's lovely and it's great. And you're, you just get taken back and there's nothing like it, really. And that's when, when I went and saw Jesse and his roaster. Like for, To see that outside of New Mexico is surreal. But I mean, like instantly you just smell it like half a mile away. You're just like, oh, there it is. <laughs> Warren told me he's worried that chili might go the way of the shins. So let me explain. Before the shins got famous, they were just this band from New Mexico, this band from Albuquerque. They were the local darling. They were like the big thing to come out of the city. And then they moved to Portland and they blew up and it's like they became the world's band. They weren't just Albuquerque's band anymore. So Warren is concerned that green chili could be like the next sriracha. You know, everybody loves sriracha. You can get it at Carl's Jr. It's just it's not going to be special anymore. He wants to keep chili small and personal. But if people are going to talk about chili, if this is going to become the world's condiment, they better at least pronounce the word correctly. It's also very important. I want to point this out. I don't know if you talked to Jesse about this. The chili is like sheep. It's plural already. It's spelled with an E at the end because the kind with the I is the Texas chili, like bowl of chili. With beans. With beans. <laughs> so put an E at the end and it's like fish or sheep. You don't need to say chilies. I just want to get that out there. That's the good world. to know. So you always just say chili. <laughs> just chili. Yeah. Green, you can put green chili on that. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. The, the classic New Mexican accent. <laughs> <laughs> I could do it, but it sounds racist. <laughs> Is there a New Mexican accent? Oh, absolutely. Jesse has it. You didn't hear? Get a little bit of it. I don't it's think like. So. <laughs> I don't want to do it because it's, it's it, a, but it's like how is I it grew a Hispanic, up. Hispanic, Native American. It's, it almost sounds more Canadian than oh. it sounds Mexican. That's what's weird about it is when I went to Canada and they sat, they talk like that that a thing. Yeah, like that's a big thing in New Mexico. I'm just I like something's going bad and <laughs> I'm getting something's going bad. Uh, um, I can't even do it. Josh was all sitting at his desk and he was talking to Kim the other day and he was like a real bad, like it was all bad, bro. <laughs> it is very Canadian and a little Midwestern. Strange. Yeah. The only way to see if Jesse does indeed have a New Mexican accent is to get back to our interview. What's your favorite thing to put chili on? Hmm. Probably hands down a breakfast burrito. Absolutely. I, I didn't hear an accent. Producer Aaron, did you hear that he had a New Mexican accent? I mean, he's got that Canadian A vowel. He does. Uh, he's got the long A a little bit, but other than that, no. Kind of like Alistair and Alanis? Alanis, you must have a good idea. I don't know. Oh, 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 oh. Alistair, you did that on purpose. So the Shins came out with their first album. It was called O Inverted World. It came out in 2001. They were signed to Sub Pop, a record label in Seattle. And then in 2002, Warren's Nightmare came true. One of their songs was in a McDonald's ad. This was a huge opportunity for the band, but their fans called them sellouts. 
I found this Seattle Times article from 2002, and the headline is, The Shins Get a Bite from McDonald's. Uh, And they refer to them as the McShins, and it's all about how the shins sold out and how the fans are so upset about the fact that their favorite band has been connected to a big, you know, commercial corporate restaurant. One place where um, music and food collided for you guys in your career was when your music was used in a McDonald's ad. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And one thing that really bugs me is that you guys got a lot of criticism because of this. Uh, But I read that that was, I don't know how this affected you, but that Mercer, you know, the, the lead singer in your band was able to buy a house and was able to come to Portland. Why do you think that people are so upset by, quote, selling out when don't you want your favorite musicians to succeed and actually make money and not be starving anymore? It, it was pretty funny because we like our phones just blew up. We were I don't know what we were watching. And I guess it came on during the Olympics. Hmm. I, I think the commercial came on. People were like sellouts, whatever. And I remember having this. We all had this conversation in the van. Um, like, what are we selling out? Like we, we we had nothing like our jobs were just meaningless jobs, you know. Um, one of us worked at a toy store. James worked in an office. I worked at a YMCA. Like, if we can make something of this and get a little chunk of change to get better equipment, record better, that isn't yeah. Like like you're saying, like isn't that the idea of bettering your craft and allowing yourself more opportunities? And- what do you? Where do you think that comes from? That fans get so upset about this concept of selling out. Well, it was such a tight knit scene at the time, and that like you know they were ours. We didn't want to share them with anyone else, let alone and, a Big Mac. Yeah, exactly. And so to to us, it was more of a betrayal of just like keeping the scene together. And when one of the parts goes to corporate America, you get sad and disappointed. <laughs> Maybe like a year after this happened on the Shin's website, there was a picture of like they were on tour or something. And there was this like one, you know how some McDonald's have like the Ronald McDonald that's just like this porcelain statue that's just hanging out on a bench. On a bench, yeah. Yeah, So they were all worshiping the Ronald McDonald in response. And for... For me, that took everything out. It was like, okay, so they're in on the joke. They don't really love McDonald's. Like, right. how could they, right? And so, I don't. It didn't last very long. It wasn't. It wasn't a huge backlash. You couldn't hold a grudge against your buddies, your no. hometown buddies. Absolutely not. All right, I think we veered sufficiently off topic. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Jesse Sandoval's last meal. And I want you to place your bets, people. Will Jesse's last meal involve green chili? We shall see. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow, and visit a Landon Garden 
Americans to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. So let's talk about your last meal. What for you would be your perfect last meal? That is such a tough question. I mean, you could go so many routes. It's like, who's your favorite band? It all depends. The, the Shins. <laughs> the Shins. That's my favorite band, Jesse. Oh, stop it. I can't. I just stop love it. you guys. You're making me blush. I'm yeah, sorry. You're making me blush. Okay. Um, I, I went with Paella. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, something about the idea of having a bunch of people around. Uh, It's a quick meal. It takes like 20, 30 minutes to cook. So many wonderful, basic, easy ingredients. Um, And I brought me back this one. I don't know where in the world I was. I wish I did. But it was this festival and they were, they had pans bigger than tires. They had like four or five of them. They had four or five different types of paellas going at one point in time. You ordered and they just went and they scooped it up. So that idea of having a large pan with paella and having people sitting around with red wine and some bread, just almost a la tapas, sort of like everybody takes whatever they want, you know, and side dishes, salads, um, that would be it. That's a very social meal because you wouldn't make one of those giant pans and just eat it yourself no. unless you are very sad right. <laughs> yeah. and watching daytime TV. Yeah. And see, and the other part of that is like, if, if I'm, if you're going out, like, wouldn't you want to sit around and like hear funny stories and have people trigger memories yeah. and, and, and voices and characters and embarrass, embarrassing stories or uplifting stories, you know, uh, tear jerkers or, you know, belly scratchers or so that that would be it. After after that, you know, uh, great stories. I would want to be uh, put to bed with a nice slice of cheesecake of any sort, like the Golden Girls enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> you can be the fifth Golden Girl. <laughs> I love. Actually, I would really love to be a Golden Girl. Which one would you want to be? I don't know. I. I Are you a Blanche? I, Are you a Sophia? I think I'm a Blanche. Oh, really? I think someone told me that I remind him of a Blanche. So you're like a Southern ladies, late man killer. Yes. Lady killer. <laughs> so back to paella, yes. if you will. Yeah. Um, what do you want in your paella? Definitely, you know, some some chicken, um, some lobster, some some clams, If uh, maybe some crawfish. Um, I don't think I had the rabbit paella, but that sounds really appetizing. Yeah. All that, all that in one just giant dish boiling with some nice rice. The crispy bottom is called sokarat, or maybe sokarat, I'm not quite sure, in Catalan. And it's an absolutely essential part of paella. Do you think that chili would be good on paella? That was tough because I can honestly argue that green chili goes in everything, but I could not. I can't imagine it in that dish at all. Me neither. I can't. It's just. A- Have you ever had a paella party of your own? I've been to a paella party. I've never, I've never ever hosted one myself. Save it for your last meal. I think I will do that. And you're invited. Thank you. Yeah. That's so nice. I'll bring the cheesecake. Please do. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I love Jesse. He's super sweet and funny and really fun to talk to. So I don't want to have to be the one to tell him that the paella he chose for his last meal 
is not an authentic Valencian paella from Spain. Now, I don't know if he cares about that. I mean, he did sell out. He wasn't a McDonald's ad. But the fact remains, it's not an authentic Valencian paella. At least not according to Spanish chef Perfecte Rocher. So does that literally mean in Spanish perfect? Yes. Is that a common name? No. No. It's not common in my Why did your parents name you this? Maybe they used to smoke a little bit or something. I don't know. You think so? <laughs> no, no. No, I think my, my grandfather was the name uh, Perfecte, and after my father, I am the third. I don't know. I, I'm going to change that. Don't worry. You are, okay. My son is going to be another. Imperfecte. Yeah, Imperfecte. Imperfecte. <laughs> Perfecte is a third-generation paella chef from Valencia. He grew up cooking and eating paella in his family's wood-fire restaurant. And he has this crazy, impressive resume. So first of all, he used to cook at El Bulli in Spain, this famous Spanish restaurant that is now closed. Uh, he was at Manresa in San Francisco, just to name a few. LA Weekly called him the best paella chef in Los Angeles. And lucky for us here in Seattle, we now have his restaurant, Tarzan y Jane, that he owns with his wife. So Perfecte says the Perfecte Paella should only that was so dumb should only be about a half inch to an inch deep, a very thin layer of rice. He says people mess this up all the time. He uses a kind of rice called bomba rice from Valencia. Uh, he says it's essential to use homemade stock and the highest quality Spanish saffron. And uh, also, you never put peas, you never put mussels, uh, you never put chicken with mussels with lobsters and things like that. You n- and never add chorizo to. It's, it's some ingredients you can add to the paella. If you want to add these ingredients, make it in a different pot and call your right dish. <laughs> but don't call paella. <laughs> oh, no. Jesse said he wanted chicken and lobster together in his paella. So what does belong in paella besides the rice and the stock? The tomato, the saffron, the chicken or rabbit. Is the, the traditional paella is rabbit, chicken, and snails. That is the authentic paella. If you don't want to do that, you can do uh, rabbit and chicken and artichokes and fava beans, or you can do romano beans, romano beans, uh, rabbit, or pork, like pork ribs. All the ingredients you put in one paella need to be in the same in the stock. Like it's a paella of fish, need to be only calamari and prawns only. And you can add onions to make the stock because onions go well with the fish. But onions don't go well with the paella of, uh, of meat, for example. So if you have rabbit in the paella, you need to make a rabbit stock. Yes. Perfecte has very strong feelings about the way food is supposed to be. He is what you'd call a creative a creative who you don't want to mess with. If you eat at his restaurant, there are no salt and pepper shakers on the tables. Uh, on his restaurant's website, they explain that the food is already perfectly seasoned. You need to trust the chef. You do not get to season your food. Because Americans are used to for uh, size of uh, <laughs> sauces, of capture. Condiments. Also. Yeah, condiments. And one of the guys uh, before trying the paella asked, uh, hey, can, I, can I have some sriracha? One of the way to call, talk to them and say, no, we don't do sriracha in this restaurant because the chef will be angry for that only lemon and that's it, you know. And uh, the guy is, I need sriracha. Telling to the chef, I asked for sriracha. And uh, and I went to the guy and I say, no, sriracha. And he get very upset and, you know, and they walk away. Uh, a couple of people walk away from the restaurant too for us for salt and pepper. I believe if you spend all day working in the kitchen, uh, you know how many salt and how many pepper you need in the dish uh, because we stay all day working with this dish, you know. Then I believe 
if you're going to a restaurant like us, it's very rude to ask about condiments like that before you try in the dish. This is a big debate yeah. in restaurant culture because there are two sides. Some people think, well, the customer should be able to eat it exactly how they want, you know, hence give them salt and pepper, and some feel how you feel where, where you don't allow it. I don't believe in that. People think because you pay in the restaurant, you are the owner. I don't believe in that. I believe in when you go to the cinema, uh, the theater, you don't change Brad Pitt for Juice Gloony because you don't like it. And you pay in the theater. If you don't like the movie, you live to, you know. Uh, it's very important that people appreciate when they go to a place to trust the chef. And I asked Perfecta, you know, what if you go somewhere and, you know, you want some ketchup or some salt and pepper? And he says if he doesn't like the way the food is prepared in another restaurant, he simply doesn't go back. He won't yelp anything bad about it. He just decides that that food is simply not for him. And he's willing to let you do the same. If you don't like his food, don't come back. But this is why I carry little ketchup packets of tapatio in my purse, because I believe that certain foods, anything Mexican needs it. And I get upset if there's just a... what is the ubiquitous hot sauce at diners? Tabasco. Tabasco. I don't like Tabasco, so I have to carry my own tapatio. Uh, but Aaron, my producer Aaron, sent me this awesome little piece of history. And I don't know if this is true because I tried to Snopes it. And I don't think anybody can figure out if this happened or not. But I will tell you anyway. Uh, rumor has it that Henry Ford, owner of the Ford Company, of course, uh, when he did interviews, he would always do them over lunch because He wanted to see how you ate your food. If your meal arrived and you salt and peppered the food before trying it, he would not hire you. When we come back, we'll talk about the history of paella and we'll talk about a key ingredient of the dish, saffron, and why it costs $2,000 a pound. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. I think when people think about Spanish food, they usually think about paella. It is basically the national dish of Spain, especially in the Valencia region. But like so many other dishes, which is why food is so fascinating, its origin comes from another culture. We have this really great Spanish and French specialty store here in Seattle near the Pike Place Market. It's called the Paris Madrid Grocery, and owner Sharon Baden shared the history of paella with me. The history of paella starts back with the Moors, the Arabs from North Africa that brought the rice and the saffron to Spain, and they built the irrigation canals right around Valencia into the delta and planted the rice and it became kind of a peasant dish for people farm workers out in the fields they'd build a fire they'd pick some rice and whatever they else they had in hand you know beans or snails or eels or they shot a rabbit they'd throw into the pan and cook a lunch over a fire so that's where it began and it's just become this 
kind of the signature dish of Spain and especially of Valencia where the rice is grown. I think the thing that people really like about paella, what Jesse probably likes about it, is it's such a social dish. You don't even have your own plate. Everybody sits around this big paella pan, which is called a paella, actually. Uh, And you just eat directly from it. You don't get a plate. You designate a wedge in front of you. You kind of like smush down the rice so that you have your little section. uh, And then you just eat out of the pan. And it's very communal. I didn't know that about this. I didn't either. And I love how Perfecte said one of the penalties for finishing first is that you have to do the dishes. But there's only one dish. You have to do the dish. (laughs) It's the dish. (laughs) It's not so hard. I love that that encourages people to sit around and talk and not just run through your food. Like that. What an awesome thing. We don't have that in this culture. I know. European culture is far superior to ours in so many ways. So one of the key ingredients in paella is saffron. And I have to admit, every time I make a recipe and it calls for saffron, I just skip it. I just skip it because I think it is very expensive. As we learned, it is it could be up to $2,000 a pound for the good stuff. Erin, uh, you found that saffron is worth more than gold. It is more expensive than Kobe Wagyu beef, which is very expensive. Uh, so I just think, well, I'm not going to pay for that. It's just this tiny little thread. How much flavor can it actually add to my dish? Uh, but Perfecte, of course says that I am wrong. It does make a difference. And Sharon explains why these little threads are so expensive. We went to the saffron harvest once in the fall in La Mancha, and it's a pretty amazing labor-intensive process. So the saffron comes from a specific crocus flower. The harvest is about a two-week period. So in the morning, the harvesters go out and they pick the flowers by hand. And remember, the flowers are about four inches is tall so they're stooped over with their baskets picking all of the blossoms that have opened that morning they take them home they pluck out the three stamens from each bowl by hand and then they dry them and roast them and let them dry overnight and in the morning the marketing merchants come and they grade the saffron on the quality and then they pay the price depending on the quality of the saffron and then the process starts all over because there's more flowers that have now bloomed the next day so they go out and pick more flowers so it's it's a very labor-intensive back-breaking job. (laughs) So is each stamen a single thread that you see? Yes yeah. Spanish saffron, just like paella, comes from the Moors. And Sharon says it probably came from India originally and moved through North Africa and into Spain. I think One last quick question before we get kicked out of the studio. Are you still playing music? Are you still drumming? Yeah. You know, I play with a lot of friends. I grew up playing music. I always wanted to play music. Uh, I can't. As much as I tried to walk away, I just kept going back to like, I'm bored. What do I do? Back to music. So So you were bored with music, so you did food, and then you got bored of food, so you went back to music. Yep, that's that's us musicians. We get bored pretty easily. Well, that's all I got. How do you feel about this? You good? Anything, any last words? I'd like to take all my words back. Okay, let me just delete this. <laughs> and it's done. Thanks for coming yes. in and um, not saying a word. Absolutely. And that is Jesse Sandoval's last meal. 
To get your mitts on his chili, if you're someone from New Mexico who is hankering for this stuff, go to LosRoast.com. It's L-O-S-Roast.com. And if you want to roast your own chili, this is really cool. Jesse is actually manufacturing and selling those roasters that we talked about earlier. Uh, so you can buy that off of that Los Roast website. Just click on A La Machina. Uh, and Aaron, you said that you tried his chili? I did. I found some in my local QFC. Uh-huh. Quality Capitol Food Hill. Center. That's right. It was awesome. Yeah, oh, I got boy. the hot stuff. I think I'm hooked. Nice. Well, while you're here, I'd like to thank you. Thank you, producer Aaron Mason. Thank you, thanks, host Rachel Bell. Thanks to Warren Langford, our chili fiend and co-host of the podcast Personal Effects. He and his co-host Alex tell stories about objects. I'm not explaining his podcast very well at all, but uh, it's super good. It's my favorite. It's beautiful. Go listen to it. Thanks to Perfecte Rocher, chef owner of Tarzani Jane in Seattle. Uh, and if you're in the city, this is your chance to try authentic Valencian paella. Thanks to Sharon Baden, owner of Seattle's Paris Madrid Grocery. Music, as always, by Prom Queen. And this really neat thing happened. Uh, thanks to you listening and leaving reviews, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, this podcast, Your Last Meal, was featured on the front page of iTunes as new and noteworthy. As new and noteworthy. Uh, number one food podcast. That's right. What? So thank you so much for your support. Uh, please leave a review if you haven't already. Subscribe. I'm Rachel Bell. And until next time, this is your last meal. Oh,